Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the senior editor of the journal Global Summetry. It was my pleasure to invite uh, Tori Tausig to join me in this podcast, which is the Now series, episode 19. I wanted to uh, talk with Tori about uh, Europe's responses to the COVID-19 crisis. I was particularly interested to examine some of the leading states in Europe as they sought to respond to this uh, global pandemic. Tori is currently a non-resident fellow in the Foreign Policy Program's Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. She's also a research director uh, of the Belfer Center at the Harvard uh, Kennedy School. So let me invite you into the virtual studio and the opportunity to meet and talk with uh, Tori Tausig. Well, so welcome, uh, Tori, to uh, the virtual studio, uh, which at least now at the moment we can see each other, <laughs> which is a change, but uh, welcome to, to the virtual studio. Thank you for the invitation. It is nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. So, uh, Tori, it's it's fairly evident we're in a pretty dramatic global event, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, you know, just looking at the kind of big picture before we get down to a focus on Europe and and uh, the various institutions there, do you think that the from your perspective that the leading states and maybe some of the significant uh, international organization, whether the WHO or the IMF or the World Bank, have really stepped up to meet uh, this crisis? The international response to the coronavirus pandemic has very much been a mixed bag thus far. It has been lamentable that we didn't see earlier and tougher responses come out from the G7 and the G20 uh, in terms of another international organization, the World Health Organization has been accused of early missteps. But the, the biggest and the most lamentable uh, aspect of, in the dearth of international leadership has come from the United States. Mm-hmm. This is um, you know, uh, one of the first recent crises I can remember where the United States hasn't stepped into a global sh- leadership role and where others are not even looking to the United States to take a global leadership role. And if we look back to recent uh, pandemics and health crises, like the Ebola crisis in Mm -hmm. 2014, the United States helped to garner an international response. If you look at the AIDS crisis in the early 2000s, the U.S. played a very large role there in leading U.N. efforts. And the the lack of American leadership in this instance has been truly striking. Yeah. Is that, I mean, let's dwell, delve into that a little bit. Is that, that's hardly surprising, I would uh, propose on two counts. One, obviously the America first uh, attitude and the anti-multilateral approach that this president and some of the pe- and the people around him have expressed. I mean, that seems to be, but also if you're, you know, if you're looking at, um, he, 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 the president, uh, seems to, you know, have difficulty you know, dealing with a coherent strategy in, in in the context of the United States, and so even in the in the Federalist notion, right? He, he will say things frequently like, "Well, that's 
you're that's yours. We're not doing it, right? So if if he's saying that to the states, it's hardly a surprise that he turns around and 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 repeats that in effect uh, when we're talking about the the, the multilateral uh, international level. I think that's right, Alan, and I think the response we're seeing from the international community, and particularly our transatlantic partners has been that the Trump administration's response to the crisis, both domestic and internationally, is confirming a lack of, of competent and strong leadership. Um, you know, I think a lot of transatlantic leaders, others around the world, are looking at the dire situation within the United States and well, as well and seeing that it's not just a lack of leadership on the world stage, but also the lack of a strong and robust public health system, the lack of a robust social safety net, and saying that this is not a model that any other country would, would wish upon their own nation. Right, right. And I mean, if you think about it, I mean, maybe, maybe this is just a, uh, a validation uh, of President Macron's uh, view, which is that the United States is brain dead. That was, that was the expression he, yeah, brain dead. Well, maybe just an application to the United States since, you know, since uh, that seems to be where, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the European exp view is, which is not to focus there at all. Right, right. And if we look at the U.S. role in international uh, organizations like the G7 and the G20, the U.S. didn't call an emergency session of either. Uh, when the G7 did meet, the U.S. blocked a joint statement over uh, other partners not being willing to call the, the, the virus, the Wuhan virus. Yeah. So the, the quote-unquote war of words between the United States and China has also inhibited a greater sense of international cooperation, which is lamentable as well. Yeah, no, and and uh, you know, I I take that point. I mean, this uh, the United States uh, position uh, on a, on on an I would well to be fair on the G seven and they they can be condemned because of course uh, currently the United States has has the hosting of the G seven and in fact i my understanding was that macron came to him and said we got to have a meeting of leaders of the g7 and apparently uh president uh, trump said well i'm kind of too busy and it was at that point you do it right and so in fact it was president macron that called together um the uh, leaders of the g7 which i suppose you know at least if you stretched it a bit he was of course the leader of the g7 the host uh last year but, you know, I guess less criticism of Trump not taking the lead, I suppose, in terms of the G20, because, of course, that's Saudi Arabia. Now, that creates its own problems. But I take it your, your view of the kind of the collective effort uh, doesn't change when one looks at something like, uh, you know, the G20 uh, leader's statement um, uh, from the March meeting, which obviously virtual meeting of the G20 leaders, which uh, seemed to suggest that uh, they will, uh, I mean, at least the statement by, released by the Saudis said that the G20 would do whatever it takes. But the only thing that I guess we've seen is their willingness to hold up the debt payment uh, for uh, the um, developing countries that's the one that's the one area that they have acted i don't believe it's permanent but it's at least a suspension but other than that it's hard to see 
the the kind of collective effort that everybody points to back with the uh, with the G20 in 2008 2009 yeah the difference between the the G G20 and, and in 2008 the G8 um, response to the global financial crisis is very different from what we're seeing today which is striking given the massive economic fallout that we are already seeing from the pandemic and which we will continue to see uh, in the months and years ahead and yes, it is true that the G20 leaders did come up with this statement saying that um, they will do whatever it takes um, right. and that they're focusing on debt vulnerabilities of poor and, and developing nations, also declared that they will inject $5 trillion into the global economy. Uh, we've seen some shared messaging or some consistent messaging across the G7 and the G20 to maintain um, open supply lines or to at least ease supply uh, disruptions caused by border closings. And so that's, that's positive. And I think we can look to these groupings as having taken stronger steps after uh, being accused of earlier slow responses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so let me let me shift the focus a little bit. I want you to explore uh, with us a bit more uh, the kind of third uh, uh, leg of the stool, and, and we can get more into that in the kind of the leading countries, but the the European Union in particular. Um, I we understand collectively that in fact uh, the EU uh, leaders, plus the Commission, obviously. Uh, they were meeting today um, uh, to deal with the various issues of the pandemic, but most particularly the question of, uh, you know, the uh, defending the economies um, uh, of the of the EU members. And I wonder if you have some sense of what what uh, one was discussed and two uh, what the outcome was, if we have it. I think it's helpful to take a step back and look at the European response uh, to the coronavirus pandemic to date. Mm -hmm. This is a region, these are countries that have been immensely hard hit by the coronavirus pandemic, in particular, uh, Italy and Spain, which have had the highest cases, the highest um, death uh, numbers as well. Uh, I think we could say that early on in the response to this crisis, the, the responses were primarily national. We saw the closing of national borders, uh, national leaders instigating, um, whether it be emergency rule in some parts of the European Union or um, just issuing stay-at-home orders. Countries seemed to very quickly kind of close in amongst themselves, but, but focus first on their citizens and, and their public health systems. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think that that was warranted. Um, on the other, you could criticize um, national leaders for not doing enough at the, at the regional stage for putting forward a European response, particularly among uh, some of the more hard hit countries. But after a few weeks, we did see um, several uh, financial and economic measures taken by the European Union. For example, in mid-March, the European Central Bank announced a stimulus program of 750 billion euros. Mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks later, EU finance ministers agreed on a plan for 500 billion uh, euros of EU support. Uh, to protect Europe's economy. Uh, so we have seen some coordinated financial measures within Europe in response to the pandemic. The big debate 
both political and economic, has been over the idea of issuing quote-unquote corona bonds or quote-unquote euro bonds mm -hmm. uh, that are effective uh, mutualized debt instruments to help some of the hardest hit, hit economies within the EU. Uh, a few weeks ago, France, along with eight other Eurozone countries, wrote a letter to the European Council President Charles Michel calling for the issuance of such mutual debt is, uh, instruments. There was then immense pushback from Northern European countries such as Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Austria, against such corona bonds. And it seems that that debate has kind of been stalled within the European Union, that the likelihood of this big measure, this big step of corona bonds, were unlikely to see happen. Uh, there was another meeting uh, today, and there was a, a press conference just concluded between uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and mm -hmm. President of the European Council, Charles Michel, on a broader economic recovery package. There haven't been concrete um, specifics announced yet, but it is clear that they are open to a broader uh, European recovery fund and that they are outlining a timeline and a process by which to consult with member states. But the next tranche of uh, European recovery funds has yet to be uh, fully announced and implemented. Okay, so there, there we see a stimulus package. Let me tie it, though, to the ongoing, uh, maybe uh, ever ongoing um, discussions about the budget because uh, the European Union, of course, uh, sets itself, uh, I guess there's seven year, seven year long budgets. I, I've never heard of such a thing, but uh, obviously the Europeans know. <laughs> so uh, this multi-annual financial framework, which I take it as the technical uh, uh, EU name for this thing uh, has how does that you know kind of play into what you've described as this recovery fund, which seems to be a stimulus kind of uh, framework uh, or, or funding, uh, and uh, even the Corona uh, bonds, etc. How does the 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 budget process fit to this? It's a great question. We don't have a lot of those specifics yet. They both von der Leyen and uh, Michelle announced an openness to having one program, uh, including both the recovery fund and the MFF rolled out. And it's certainly going to have a significant impact on the budget that I think is going to open up new political fault lines within the EU. Mm -hmm. For example, we've seen French President Emmanuel Macron come out and say that France will not support the next EU budget if it does not take into account enough uh, recovery spending for the pandemic. And mm -hmm. we're likely to see kind of a replay of this debate in Corona bonds, a replay of this debate about a broader, stronger European response uh, play out in budget talks, but it's it's still a little murky the how that specifically will factor into the budget talks at this moment. Do you think uh, uh, the head of the the president of the commission, uh, Van der Leyen, uh, did she kind of improve the atmosphere uh, within the EU, the EU twenty seven, with her very direct apology? for failing to uh, support Italy in particular when it was in the midst of the crisis and, you know, basically their hospital system was collapsing around them. Do you think that that apology has helped improve kind of the, the relationship and particularly this north-south divide that seems to be so much a part of the politics of the EU? 
I think what the Italians are looking for at this moment is not an apology, but they're looking for support. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, the early response to this pandemic was primarily national, and there were um, restrictions against exporting, even outside national borders, um, uh, protective gear and medical supplies, which mm -hmm. the Italians looked at, um, regrettably, given that they were the hardest hit. Uh, and we've seen most support for the Italian position coming from, again, leaders like French President Emmanuel Macron and not necessarily that of the European Commission. Um, and again, I think that this lack of willingness to move forward with uh, mutualized debt is another kind of crux in that debate. To your, to your other point, I mean, this really is exposing these divisions between uh, Northern and Southern European countries, between Eastern and Western European countries that were so Kind of deeply enshrined after the global financial crisis and the Eurozone debt crisis that imposed harsh measures on the Greek economy um, that in the longer term led to the rise of populist leaders across Southern Europe, across Europe, and anti-EU sentiment as well. Mm -hmm. And my concern is that this response at the European level and also at the, the national level across Europe may deepen those divides and enhance that populist sentiment across Southern Europe. Well, and in that regard, a favorite topic for you, uh, Hungary and its illiberal government, as you reference the fact that uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Orban uh, secured all sorts of emergency powers claimed to be within the context, obviously, of the uh, uh, immediate emergency of the pandemic. I mean, I've heard next to no kind of reaction on the part of European leaders to this gathering of, of power uh, for the prime minister, who at the best of times has been not a particularly democratic uh, figure. Right. So for, for context, um, as you mentioned, Viktor Orban has declared a state of emergency, which has effectively suspended civil rights and democratic processes in Hungary in response to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've, we've seen other national leaders in Europe and elsewhere taking pretty stringent measures to stop the spread of the pandemic. But the bigger question, the bigger issue at hand is how long will these emergency measures stay in place? whether there will be a democratic process to remove them in due course. Uh, and it shouldn't be forgotten that this is in line with what we've seen Viktor Orban's government do in recent years to kind of push back on democratic constraints on his own rule. Mm -hmm. And that's why the concern is magnified at what we're seeing in um, Orban's emergency measures today. There has been some rhetorical pushback at the European levels and from other leaders around the world. Uh, there has not been many concrete steps taken to, quote unquote, punish or disincentivize that type of uh, behavior from Orban or the Fidesz party. It will be interesting to see in upcoming European Union budgetary talks whether there is any sort of rule of law conditionality imparted on um, the, the spending and the recipient of those EU funds. Mm -hmm. I think if there were ever a time for that conditionality to be put in place, it is now. Uh, but the EU to date has been hamstrung in its ability to push back against this creeping illiberal democracy in Hungary because very strong tools, for example, like Article 7 measures, which would suspend the rights of European member states, require unanimity. 
And Poland, Warsaw, has made clear that they would block any sort of punitive measures against Hungary. And so despite the rhetorical flourishes, the rhetorical pushback from many European leaders, we haven't seen very strong actions taken against Orban to date. I mean, not even the European People's Party looking to expel Fidesz, given the rollback of democratic uh, processes and norms within Hungary. So we'll see in the coming months whether... Europe considers these emergency measures a red line mm-hmm. and, and is interested in taking a harder stance when it comes to budgets and um, EU funds. Coming back out just for, uh, you know, kind of to wrap, wrap it up, uh, you know, Macron described this crisis as, President Macron, as a, a kind of make it or break it. Uh, for the European uh, Union. Uh, now, I'm not quite sure what he means by make it or break it, but, you know, he's often talked about this continuum that's in Europe between simply, it's not simple, but the a marketplace, uh, which is the focus of the European uh, Union, or a political community, which he regards as as the EU. He doesn't regard a marketplace is a common market, and that's all it is. Um, so, do, you know, is is it the case that he's he he sees this as really the kind of final question around this notion of the political community, or is it always going to be incremental and and uh, always you know open for nudging one way or another? Macron's comments get to the deeper issue at stake, which is that the European Union is not just a, or that European institutions are not just an economic market, but also a political project. And what we're seeing play out in responses to the pandemic are not just economic debates, but political debates. And I think what is at stake for the EU right now is its very political solidarity, its cohesion and its unity. all of which were hurt immensely after the global financial crisis and the Eurozone debt crisis. And it is up to Europe, to Macron's point, to show that it is more than an economic, it is more than the Eurozone, and that it is a political project that's able to show solidarity and cohesion in a time of crisis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, does it also, I mean, there's the open question, but does it also raise that concern? I mean, he's talked about, again, President Macron's talked about this notion of Europe as, a, as you know, strate- Europe's strategic autonomy, which I take it, if I'm interpreting correctly, really uh, means that not only are the leading countries, the United States of the global environment, uh, the United States and China, but that Europe has to increasingly take on a um, autonomous role, which includes, I presume, strategic military kinds of initiatives. I mean, is that also part of what, you know, that is is happening or is the pandemic just simply taking that off the table or never put it on the table? It's a great point. And it's important to keep in mind, as you've mentioned, that pandemic aside, Europe finds itself in a new geopolitical moment, uh, mm-hmm. increasingly characterized by competition between the United States and China. And it's finding itself in a new world where it has to find its own footing. Given that it doesn't seem that Europe can rely as much on its partnership with the United States either. 
there has been a lot of talk in recent year and particularly in the last year of Europe becoming more strategically autonomous mm -hmm. of Europe becoming a more geopolitically um, significant actor when Ursula von der Leyen became the president of the European Commission in 2019 she said that Europe needed to take strides to becoming a more geopolitical actor and you know if we really take stock of what the what what Europe's strengths are on the world stage they're not necessarily political sorry they're not necessarily uh, security or military driven they're they're economic uh, Europe is a geo-economic power. It is also a champion of, of democracy and human rights around the world, but its ability to compete with other great powers like the United States and China stems from its, its common market and its economic power. And, uh, you know, the response to the pandemic is going to require a significant economic response. Uh, we're likely to see a global economic recession. Um, mm -hmm huge recessions in Europe and the United States and elsewhere, and Europe's ability to respond the best it can on the economic level will prove whether it is capable of competing geoeconomically with, with other great powers today. So as a final thought then, Tori, uh, do you have any prediction as to what, what I mean, are we going to see a, a more a solidarity, greater solidarity in Europe uh, as a result of the pandemic? Or are we likely to see it just simply remaining the kind of fragmented, argumentative uh, environment that we've seen, certainly in many respects since, uh, since the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, 2010? Where are we going in Europe? Well, to, to pull this out a little bit from Europe and look more internationally, I think <laughs> what the world needs right now, including Europe, is more international coordination among the United States and China and Europe and international organizations for great, greater cooperation on vaccine research, on economic responses mm -hmm. um, that we're not seeing today. And I worry that as... The United States and China get increasingly locked in competition uh, as the U.S. heads closer to a presidential election in which Trump finds it advantageous to be tough on China. Uh, as we look to the months ahead where nationalist sentiment is being stoked within China, that there are conspiracy theories being launched about the U.S. military bringing the virus to China, as we see this kind of war of words um, remain between the U.S. and China, it's up to multilateral stakeholders like the United States to bridge those divides and to carry the mantle of, of leadership in, in these instances. We're certainly not seeing it from the United States. We haven't seen it from China. Mm -hmm. And I think that if Europe were able to get its kind of domestic and regional act together, that it could be an important leader on, on the world stage. Uh, you know, for example, we've seen national leaders within Europe already play a very significant role. Uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany has been lauded for her strong, very calm, pragmatic, scientific response to the crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, she's been lauded on the world stage for that. And this is the type of leadership that we, I think, can expect from Europe moving forward uh, if it is able to overcome some of these deep divisions, which I do not take as a given at the present moment. So you're hedging your bets is what you're telling me, Tori. <laughs> well, I want to thank We could be hedging our bets for years. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us here uh, in the studio to talk about 
the European response to uh, the um, COVID-19 uh, the COVID-19 virus. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, and I hope to see you in person sometime soon. <laughs> You've been listening to the Global Cemetery Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com. <laughs>